0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 261 for September 25th, 2011, recorded September 23rd. Now, there's a lot to do this week, so let's get started. You know, there's more to backup than just backup. How many files are on your computer that if they suddenly disappeared, you would be at least mildly distressed? Financial records, photographs, letters you've written, email files, music, videos. Now, you could get some of these files back, but most of them, if they're lost, are simply lost, gone, unrecoverable. For that reason, I use external backup drives that I store at the office, and Carbonite, whose servers are hundreds of miles away. That's a double backup, and it eliminates most potential disasters. But what if the computer just simply stops working, and I need my files right now? This is not a hypothetical situation. It has happened to me. In that case, the service interruption lasted about five minutes because I was able to start up a laptop computer and attach it to a couple of local backup drives. The notebook computer has most of the applications that are on the desktop, so I can continue working as long as I have access to my data. That's what's on those local drives that sit beside the computer. Let me make it clear that I don't consider these locally backed up files to be backups because any file stored in the same physical location as the original file doesn't count as a backup. The files stored at the office are a backup, but they're at least several days old because I only do a backup once a week, and I'd have to go to the office and get them and bring them back and restore the data. Files that are backed up to Carbonite are immediately available, but I'd have to download them, so large numbers of files or large files would take some time to retrieve. Files stored in my local disaster recovery drives are available right now. The trick is keeping those local drives up to date. Until recently I had used a file synchronization program from AlwaySync, but when I added Pogo Plug, AlwaySync was unable to keep up. I haven't confirmed that AlwaySync's problem was caused by Pogo Plug, but Pogo Plug does create an enormous number of transcoded files to make photos, audio files, and video files available remotely, and AlwaySync crashed constantly, starting at the time I installed Pogo Plug. During the crash it always seemed to be analyzing or synchronizing those transcoded files. I began looking around for another application that would allow me to keep my local files up to date and GoodSync appeared to be a promising candidate. I downloaded the trial version and installed it. Before I could even notice that the user interface was far superior to what I'd been using, I was astonished by the speed of the application. Instead of a 1973 Chevy Vega, I now had a 2010 Lamborghini Cabrera. Well, all right, maybe the difference wasn't quite that extreme. But within half an hour, I was sure that I would be converting from the trial version to the paid or professional version. Here's an example of how it works. I want to be sure that all of my digital photography images are immediately available on the local backup drive, so I define a backup job that will copy all new photos to the backup drive. Because no new photos will ever be added directly to the backup drive, I don't want the synchronize option, although GoodSync does have that option. As with most applications of this type, the definitions consider left to be the source and right to be the destination, so the first step is to select the source directory on the left, then define the destination directory on the right. I defined it as being one of my local hot backup drives, the drives I can detach at a moment's notice from the desktop computer and connect to the laptop. Although with Windows 7 I have taken steps to ensure that the local backup drives will always mount as drives X and Z, GoodSync realized that the drive is a USB device and that it might someday be mounted as a different drive letter. When offered the option to refer to the device by name instead of by letter, I accepted that suggestion. By default, GoodSync will propagate deletions. This is a reasonable choice, but Consider that I'm not a reasonable person. I'd prefer not to lose the backup copy of a file that I accidentally or stupidly deleted from the source directory. For that reason, I visited the options panel and deselected Propagate Deletions. Having set the analysis in action, I stared in amazement as GoodSync ripped through nearly 8,000 files per second. And then with the analysis complete, synchronization was the next step. It occurred with equally surprising speed. Then all that was left was to schedule the job so that it would run automatically. Alwaysync offered more options, but GoodSync is so fast that the on-change option seemed to be the most reasonable choice. So whenever files change or appear in the source directory, they will be replicated in the backup directory. Other options include scheduled synchronizations, which I do use for some tasks. For example, my email directory changes every few minutes. I really don't care about having up to the second backups, so I schedule a backup there once a day. Always Sync offers a free version, but if you use it to synchronize more than a few files or more than a few times, you'll start receiving warnings that you need to upgrade to the professional version. GoodSync also offers a free version, but it's a bit more upfront and transparent about the limitations of that free version. The free version works only when the backup job contains no more than 100 files, and you're not allowed to define more than three jobs. During the trial period, and once you buy the professional version, Both file count and job count are unlimited. The bottom line on GoodSync 5CAT's happiness is never having to say, Oh, I lost it. GoodSync more than lives up to its name. The clean interface makes it easy to set up, and the speedy operation keeps it out of your way. For more information, you can visit the GoodSync website. There's a link to it, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website. If I had to describe the future of publishing in two words, these are the words I would choose. Frightening and exciting. Although I'm not optimistic about the future of terrestrial radio or commercial television, I can see a bright future for publishing, but that future won't involve a lot of paper, it won't involve a lot of printing presses, and it won't involve the delivery of physical publications. This change is happening now and Adobe continues to be one of the key players. Newspaper, magazine, and book publishers have all been scrambling for years as they try to figure out where they will fit into what's being called a post-literate world where nobody reads. Nobody? As much as we old folks like to say that the new generation is hopeless and stupid, we're wrong. These complaints have been made since the days of the ancients, Plato's writings quoted Socrates, 450 B.C., as saying, The children now love luxury. They have bad manners. Contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not servants of their household. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company, goggle up dainties at the table, cross their legs, and tyrannize their teachers. Socrates, Generations are different because each generation is required to deal with the world as it is, not as we or they might wish it to be. Some condemn schools for failing to teach Roman numerals. But what value does a knowledge of Roman numerals impart? The ability to understand that MCMLVII means a film was created in 1957? Yeah, I learned Roman numerals in school. Didn't have to. There was really no point. But I did because the teacher told me they'd be useful. Well, the teacher was wrong. Today, anybody who wonders what MCMLVII means can find out in about five seconds by using Google. Stupid? No. As Albert Einstein said, never memorize something that you can look up. Today's school children, on the other hand, are more likely to understand a joke such as the following, and I have to warn you that this works a lot better in print than it does spoken. There are one-zero kinds of people in the world, those who understand binary and those who don't. For the binary challenged, zero one is one decimal, and one zero binary is two decimal. So the one zero, which looks a lot like decimal ten, the one zero kinds of people are zero one, those who understand binary, and one zero, those who don't. I always hate it when you have to explain a joke. You're probably wondering what this has to do with today's topic, and quite frankly, so am I, so I'll see if I can figure out something. Today's young people may not know Roman numerals. They may not speak English the way we'd like to hear it spoken. They may not possess what we consider intelligence, but they've learned how to make their way through the world so far. They can read what interests them, but they may not want to hold a folded New York Times on the D train. They may prefer to read the newspaper on an iPad or a Kindle. Give people of any age a reason to read, and they will. And that, ah, that actually has a lot to do with today's topic. Publishers are frightened. Distributing intellectual property via the Internet is scary because the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, felt that any electronic distribution was illegal and immoral. People routed around the RIAA. And because of that, it's now hard to convince people that there is any value in music, let alone any reason to pay for it. Fortunately, services such as Spotify and Pandora make low-cost streaming readily available. People are starting to be willing to accept minimal advertising content or to pay a reasonable monthly fee for the content. The same could be true for publications. The New York Times recently installed a paywall. The Columbus Dispatch is available as a Dead Trees on Your driveway version or an electronic publication. Magazines such as the New Yorker have progressed to the point that electronic-only subscriptions are available. In fact, Adobe shows dozens of publishers who are currently, as in right now, today, making their content available electronically. When distribution is electronic, some of the publication's costs change dramatically. The New Yorker still needs to hire writers, both staff and freelance, editors, fact-checkers, proofreaders, graphic artists, and designers. But when the publication goes fully electronic, there will be no longer any need for press operators, printing presses, ink, paper, buildings to house those printing presses, paper, and ink, trucks to deliver the magazines to the post office, truck drivers to drive those trucks, or the cost of postal delivery. Yet another nail in the coffin of the U.S. Postal Service. The cost structure changes dramatically, and that's the part that publishers seem to be a little unclear on. Publishers are still pushing $10 a year subscriptions for new subscribers to print publications, while publications such as The New Yorker are trying to convince readers that they should pay $40 for a one-year electronic subscription. You can forgive the average subscriber, I think, for not knowing that $10 per year for a weekly print publication doesn't even cover the cost of postage to say nothing of writers, editors, fact checkers, proofreaders, graphic artists, designers, press operators, printing presses, ink paper, buildings to house the printing presses, and trucks to deliver the magazines to the post office. And by the same token, you can forgive the average subscriber from wondering why an electronic subscription should cost $40 instead of 10 $40. Well for a weekly publication that's less than a dollar a week if it's a daily you're down to 11 cents a day is that a fair cost some people will consider any cost too much but i have faith that people's inherent propensity to do the right thing will eventually prevail and that brings us to why publishers are very excited Print's limitations are prodigious Designers and editors have only so much space to work with. Every photograph or illustration takes up space that could be filled with words. Some articles would benefit from the inclusion of a lot of photographs or some video or audio. Well, that isn't possible with a printed publication. Although magazines used to occasionally bind in 33 RPM records, nobody has a turntable anymore to play those, so you don't see them anymore. Print doesn't do audio or video, and if you include more photos, you've got to cut back on the text. All of those limitations disappear when the publication is electronic. All of them. So the question is, how do we get from here to there? And that is the point of this week's program. Adobe is leading the way. I would expect competition to crop up, but given Adobe's current capabilities in design, graphics, print, audio, and video... It's hard to determine where credible competition will come from. So let's take a look at what Adobe has to offer publishers. The new Folio tool and the Overlay Creator tool are at the center of the future publisher's field of vision. Folio is all about output. Overlay is all about creating interactivity. You typically call on the Overlay Creator panel after you select an InDesign frame. The overlay you create will have no meaning to the printed page, of course, but when the document is published to the web or to a mobile device format, the frame could include a slideshow, a video, a map, or any of other several types of content that's dynamic. These are things that the user can interact with, choose to view, or skip. The next step is to create a folio file. These files are currently served by Adobe via an iPad application. Other hosting will certainly be available and more devices will doubtless be supported. Any Adobe customer can have a free Acrobat.com account, and this account allows the user to publish one publication for free. An Adobe Digital Publishing Suite account allows you to generate additional folios and distribute the documents to subscribers. The key term here is subscribers, because the goal is to monetize digital content in a way that is palatable to both the users and the content developers. Creating a folio involves publishing one or more InDesign documents. These can then be viewed and tested with the Adobe Content Viewer. That's a new feature of Adobe InDesign CS 5.5. Earlier versions of InDesign exported documents in what seemed like a random order. It wasn't random, of course, but it was common to find captions and asides appearing in front of main articles. Now, the content order can be based on page layout, the XML structure, or the articles panel. That's a new one, which is the big breakthrough. The designer uses the articles panel to specify the exact order in which each component should appear. So now articles will always start with the main title, possibly followed by a byline, and then the main article. Asides, callouts, outs run-ins, captions, and all those other things can be carefully placed in the electronic document, just as they are in a print document. The CS 5.5 version of InDesign has also made significant strides in ebook publishing. Earlier versions of InDesign support EPUB, but require a lot of post-production work outside of InDesign. Embedded images, for example, were a problem. Now you can have the image resized to fit the viewer. That's important because viewers come in all sizes, from tiny phones to large tablets. Graphics can be output at relatively high resolution too, 300 dpi, instead of at screen resolution, which is nominally 72 dpi. This could allow the reader device to enlarge the image, zoom in on it, without pixelation. The changes and improvements in the Adobe CS 5.5 family are much more significant than the .5 number suggests. In an effort to keep up with rapid changes in the various industries supported by the Creative Suite, and these are publishing, motion picture, television, audio, and radio. Adobe has moved from its previous two-year development cycle to a one-year development cycle. That means that Creative Suite users will pay for updates twice as often if they choose to keep up with the latest updates, but it will also mean that their Adobe toolkits will continue to contain the latest cutting-edge features. The bottom line for the entire Adobe CS 5.5 suite is... What else? 5. Money spent on superior tools is rarely wasted. If you feel it's important to have the latest capabilities to support your clients, CS 5.5 is a must. And if you're still using CS 4, or an earlier version, you are missing out on more than you know. On the other hand, if you're using Adobe Creative Suite 5 and you're absolutely certain that you have no need for any of the .5 features, then you could probably wait for the upcoming CS 6. But before you make that decision, make sure you're considering the functions in all of the applications you use, not just InDesign. And I would recommend downloading the CS 5.5 trial version and at least giving it a test run to see what you think. For more information, visit the Adobe CS 5.5 website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. HTML 5 is just around the corner, and I've been watching James Williamson's HTML 5 First Look program at lynda.com. One of the things I noticed is that the presentation methods have improved yet again. As web capabilities improve, lynda.com continues to make use of those new capabilities. Williamson's HTML5 program is about four and a half hours long, and I consider it to be an excellent overview of the technologies that will eventually replace HTML4 and supplant XHTML2 strict. That 2, by the way, is a numeral 2, but too strict is also a good way to look at XHTML2 strict. It's too strict, and it's too strict. Well, anyway, after trying to force adoption of technologies that would break millions of websites, the W3C finally admitted that the path it was following was the wrong one. HTML5 will bring useful new capabilities, but it will be backwards compatible with even badly written HTML pages. What I noticed during the presentation, though, is that Williamson spent more time on screen than has been the case in the past. Typically, Lynda.com presentations would start with a video introduction in which we saw the presenter and then transition to a PowerPoint-like presentation for the remainder of the program. Occasionally, the presenter might be visible again at the beginning of each section. The new process more closely replicates live presentations as presenters stand in front of a whiteboard. I really like this presentation method because it's more like a live class. The video presentation cuts back and forth from images of the presenter in front of the screen to just the screen itself. If you're at all interested in HTML5 and what it'll bring to the table, I can enthusiastically recommend the HTML5 first look by James Williamson. And lynda.com overall is a remarkable resource that has continued to expand and improve over the years. Topics range from the expected technology and design titles to more general discussions of creativity and even a few documentaries ranging from less than half an hour to slightly more than an hour. (laughs) Last week's TechBiter Worldwide report on Windows 8 included some errors based on misunderstandings. Now, you're not going to see weekly Windows 8 reports between now and launch time, but I will occasionally let you know how things are going as development continues. And I felt I owed you a few amplifications, modifications, and corrections this week. The next scheduled Windows 8 preview update will be on the November 13 program. Last week I said applications don't close. Well, that's not quite true. Metro applications don't close. If you're using Microsoft Word, it will open on a desktop that looks a lot like the desktop you're now using. Applications can be sized and positioned just as they can right now, and Alt-F4 still closes the current application. There's even a place where the traditional start menu might be located on that desktop. Gizmodo had a comparison this week that, although interesting, seems rather badly flawed. In suggesting that Windows 8 may be one of Microsoft's bad operating systems, Windows ME and Windows Vista are usually cited as the bad ones, Gizmodo claimed that Windows 95 was a bad operating system. Compared to Windows XP or Windows 7, Windows 95 would be a bad system. But compared to what it replaced, Windows 3.11, it was a terrific operating system. I found it interesting that Gizmodo omitted Windows NT, which some people consider good and some people consider bad, and Windows 2000, which almost everybody considers good from their chart. Overall, it seemed like a comparison not worth making. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see my start screen on Windows 8. The applications I've installed show up on the Metro Start page. The page itself is extremely wide and lends itself very well to tablets and phones. But on large screens, as in laptops or desktops, the icons are far too large. Today, only two icon sizes exist. They are called large and small. On a regular monitor, they would be called enormous and ridiculously huge. I suspect that the developers are working to create some sizes that are based on dimensions of the screen. At least, I hope they're doing that. Probably the most common question I've heard from listeners and readers is along the lines of, why is Microsoft making all these touchy-feely changes? Some have said it more politely, others have said it with considerable scorn. Most of the people who don't like the change use desktop computers or large and not very portable notebooks. They don't have tablet computers. And for those reasons, their responses are to be expected. But consider this. Microsoft says that more than two out of three PCs today are mobile devices. Laptops, notebooks, netbooks, tablets, slates. For that reason, alone, the company needs to address those devices, and keyboard and mouse-centric solutions are the wrong answers. That's not to say that Microsoft can ignore those of us who are tied to a mouse and a keyboard. I am one of those people. Windows 8 will have a desktop. Currently, there is just a start screen, but I hope that the start menu will be retained for those who choose to use the desktop view, or at least that the start screen will be modified to allow more customization than is currently available. And a few other brief notes, Windows 8 will continue the idiotic practice of hiding extensions when the file type is known. This can, as always, be turned off, and it's probably the first thing you should do once you install Windows 8, whenever that is, late next year or the following year. The Windows Explorer is going to have a ribbon interface. Some people like ribbons, some don't. Usually those who don't like ribbons Decide that they do like them after using them for a little while. This is going to improve usability considerably for a lot of people. Deleting a file in Windows Explorer by pressing the delete key no longer triggers a confirmation dialog. I always did think that was unneeded because deleted files can be retrieved from the recycle bin. Emptying the recycle bin still includes a confirmation dialog. That one is warranted. On a dual screen system, Windows 8 allows the user to specify different resolutions for each monitor, and this is a big improvement for people who use a notebook. Notebooks often have non-standard screen dimensions, and if you attach an external monitor, it often has much more standard screen dimensions. In this case, both monitors will have a taskbar, too. The taskbars are duplicates of each other, with the exception of the icon for the start screen, which can be on one screen or the other, but not both. Although duplicating the taskbar on both screens makes sense for usability, I keep having trouble not thinking of it as wasted space. But I think it's the right decision. Windows 8 continues Microsoft's efforts to make the system more secure. Most of the capabilities in the new OS aren't new, but they are continuations of initiatives that have been around for a few years. The Action Center, Windows Defender, User Account Control, Backup and Restore, Windows Update, Windows Firewall. Nothing particularly new in there, but there are improvements across the board. In short circuits, an email from Netflix CEO Reed Hastings. The message begins, I messed up. I owe you an explanation. Ah, so I had hope. Netflix sees the error of its 30% price increase and will roll it back, I thought. Well, not exactly. The mistake, according to Hastings, was failing to explain why Netflix will split into two companies and why that means you'll see two charges on your credit card and why, if you retain both DVD and streaming, you'll be paying about 30% more. By way of apology, the Netflix CEO says that the greatest fear at Netflix has been that the company wouldn't make the leap from success in DVDs to success in streaming. I quote Reed Hastings, Most companies that are great at something like AOL Dial-Up or Borders Bookstores do not become great at new things that people want. So we moved quickly into streaming, but I should have personally given you a full explanation of why we are splitting the services and thereby increasing prices. It wouldn't have changed the price increase, but it would have been the right thing to do. I think he might have chosen better examples. Many people consider that AOL was never good at anything except making money for a while, and that as soon as people figured out they could obtain better service from a standard internet service provider, they left AOL en masse. And then there's Borders, the bookstore chain that's in the process of going out of business. Hastings says that the company realized that streaming and DVD by mail are really becoming two different businesses with very different cost structures that need to be marketed differently, and we need to let each grow and operate independently. So, in a few weeks, your DVDs will no longer come from Netflix. That name will be reserved for the streaming service. DVDs will come from a new company, Quickster, Q-W-I-K-S-T-E-R. Hastings says they chose that name, because it refers to quick delivery. If you subscribe to both services, you will have two entries on your credit card statement, one for Quickster and one for Netflix. The total will be the same as your current charges. The envelope will still be red, but the logo will change. Where do the marketing folks come up with these names? Quickster? How novel is that? We already have Flickster, which allows people to share movie reviews with friends. Netster, a search engine with games. Napster, the ill-fated music sharing service. So, And then, of course, there's Dumpster, a literal device where you place your literal trash. I think we've gone stir-crazy. Reed Hastings posted a longer version of his message at the Netflix blog, and I'm providing a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. As of the 20th of September, less than two days after Hastings posted his apology, there were 24,572 comments. The 20th was the last time I checked. The comments are not all negative, but many of them are. Here are just four examples. Number one. How ironic that you used Borders as a reference. I worked for their bookstores for a decade and saw their downfall from the inside, and you are setting yourself up to follow the same path. Number two, Quickster? Really? I hate services that try to be all funny and catchy with their names. Number three, so this is an apology email or a terms of service email? Was it a coincidence that you decided to bifurcate your business and rebrand one half of it at the same time you felt it necessary to apologize for pissing off all of your customers? And number four, let's be honest here. The real reason you've increased your prices is simply because you can. Independent video rental stores are a thing of the past. Redbox is a joke and Blockbuster is on its last legs. Netflix has dominated the market, so now the people have no real alternative, You merely figured that you could gouge another six bucks a month out of each of your millions of customers, and it would be just fine. My opinion? No, I thought you'd never ask, but you'll have to check the TechBiter Worldwide website because, my opinion... Is a graphic. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about twenty minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com, and if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye bye.